there's a lot of failure in life and in, in, in your work. And I think it's, in, you know, it, it behoves in us well to embrace it and see the silver linings and learn from it. And anytime you go to a new environment, there's like a lot, there's always a lot of fun to be had. My name is Emily Chadbourne and welcome to Behind the Change, a podcast to inspire hope. Because, let's be honest, sometimes it feels like the whole world has gone to shit. But here at Behind the Change, we speak to amazing humans who are doing really great things to make this world a better place. We find out what drives their leadership, what beliefs hold them firm in turbulent times, and what it really takes to grow their businesses and organisations to create even more impact. If you'd like to support our guests and little old me, then please share the episodes that you love. Rate and review because it really does help more people find us. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land I live and work on and that this podcast was recorded on, the Boonarong people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to elders both past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome to another episode of Behind the Change. I mean, I'm just going to start with a little confession. I reckon I've got a little mini crush on today's guest. If you've not heard of Byron Fay yet, get on Google and have a little search. This guy is a legend. He's the executive director of Climate 200. And if you don't know what Climate 200 is, all good. Strap in, you're about to find out. Byron was so generous in this interview. His intelligence his compassion, his genuine desire to see the world become a better place. It really shone through in this kind of like orb of optimism. I left this interview honestly feeling so much more optimistic about the state of the world and about how I was just knowing, I think, just knowing that there's this bunch of human beings who are working so hard and so intentionally to try and create the change that is so desperately needed in the face of the climate crisis. So enjoy this episode. I think you're going to fall in love with Byron Fay because he is such a gem of a human being. So Byron, thank you so much for joining me today. It is an honour to speak to you. I know you're a very busy man. So let's jump into it really quickly before we get into the depths of the interview. Just in case somebody's listening who may be in the UK or isn't quite sure about what Climate 200 is all about. Can you give us a little overview of the initiative? Sure, Emily. Great to be talking to you. I might just start by acknowledging the country I'm calling in from. So calling in from Gadigal Land here in Sydney, down on beautiful Bondi Beach uh, today. So Climate 200 is a community crowdfunding initiative. So essentially we pull resources from community members. The last federal election in Australia, that was in May 2022, there were 11,000 people across the country. A third of them were from rural and regional areas. Um, Every single electorate in the country represented. So there's 151 of those. Every um, people in every electorate contributed to the project. And the idea is to pool resources to then contribute to independence, community-based, community-selected independence, so not um, party-affiliated candidates um, who are passionate and and advocates uh, for three specific issues when it comes to Climate 200, a science-based response to climate, 
restoring integrity to politics and advancing the safety and treatment of women. So gender equity, gender equality at the end there as well. So those are the three main issues. And if, if a candidate we think is um, an advocate on those three issues, they have community backing and they have a viable pathway to win, then they're eligible for support. And Climate 200 through the donor community provides support in a number of ways. The most obvious one is through donations. So to compete in politics, uh, obviously you need a number of things, uh, but money is one of them. And so we provide donations to those candidates. But we also provide a few other things, uh, support with analytics. We like to be data-driven in what we do. So we do polling and research work that we support the candidates with. That also helps us to be informed about how best to make donations where it's most strategic to the candidates who are most likely to succeed. We have a capacity building function, uh, sort of like a help desk if the, the campaigns don't know how to do something. Obviously, many of the people involved are new to politics. One of the things we love about the community independence movement, very few people have had experience in politics because the major party system hasn't really spoken to them. And so often they don't know about what it takes to run a campaign. And so we have a, a few experts here on staff who can give support and advice in how to run um, good campaigns. And then we have a communications function. Uh, so we, we have our own advertising program. We develop our own video content. Uh, we developed during the federal election, a social media influencer campaign that was quite successful. Uh, and so that can help create a context in which the candidates that we support can be successful. I mean, it's really changed the face of politics here in Australia, hasn't it? Yeah, I think it's 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 a it's been been a unique contribution. We you know, we're always keen to say climate trying we're just one contributor to this ecosystem that supported the success of community independence at the last federal election here. For the listeners uh, in information, eleven community independents were elected, seven for the very first time, six in the lower house and one in the Senate. Uh, there were twenty three that we backed, so there was a bunch of others that campaigned that didn't quite make it. Many of them came really close, and so. Looking forward to the next federal election. We're really excited about the prospects for a number of those those uh, campaigns there, those community groups there. But yeah, in terms of the um, the impact of the last election, biggest crossbench in Australian political history. Uh, lots of good momentum on climate change and integrity, anti-corruption measures mm -hmm. since the entrance of those um, new parliamentarians into the parliament, and and so it's really encouraging. There's a, there's a movement out there. In Australia, in the in the community, that's really started at the grassroots level. By our count, there were twenty thousand different volunteers that got involved in these campaigns to help do things like door knocking and, and handing out flyers at, at bus stops and train stations and letterboxes, uh, and that really was the core of much of the um, the the driving force behind these campaigns that allowed these these new independents to be successful. And it's been great seeing what they've been doing. They're, they're real leaders in their fields. They're um, people who aren't political hacks. They're not people who have really spent their whole career working in politics. They've had other careers, been successful in their own right, done things like being local GPs or being successful business people, uh, elite sports, sportsmen and women. And now they've turned their mind to contributing to their communities in a different type of way. And, and they're being very successful at doing that. It's, it's such an amazing initiative, um, not just for people who now get to step into the space of politics, but I think also for the wider community to feel like there are people inside the political system now that they can actually relate to. I think um, I've only been a voter in Australia for a few years, but I definitely got the sense that there was a sense of sort of disenfranchised feeling 
around for, for a lot of voters. You know, who do I vote for? None of these parties really speak to me. And so I think just having this wave of teals come in who are, you know, really standing up for their community, it's just, it's been such a phenomenon to watch. Um, and yeah, it made me, made me proud to have my passport, my Australian passport, I'll be honest. Yeah, I'm glad about that. Yeah, I think it's one of the, the amazing things about the community independence movement is that it's fundamentally about finding real represent, re representatives from the community for the community. So many of these um, community groups that started around the country, um, the Voices Of model, mm. as may have heard of, um, normally the, the local community groups start with a Voices Of insert electorate name. So where I am, it's Wentworth. So it was Voices Of Wentworth. Um, and they um, start as real grassroots community groups, simply asking the question of the community, what do you want to see from your political representation? What are you hoping for from your represent representative in parliament? And, and from that, there's a really nice discussion that starts in the community. And often people find they have never been asked that before. And when they're asked to engage in that, they often have really good ideas about what they want to see. And then as it grows, there's people who... They become aware of in the community that they think would be really good and often they ask them to run and often those people say no the first time which is a good sign um they're often pretty you know turned off by the type of politics we've seen playing out here in australia and elsewhere over recent times but once they kind of figure out the community is supportive of them and there's other groups out there like climate 200 who are prepared to get in there and and back them and it's a real community endeavor often these really great community leaders stand up and yeah, they are normal people. Um, Zoe Daniels is a great example. Uh, she you know, spent her career as a journalist, um, quite well known here in Australia, long time as a foreign correspondent. So re reporting from war zones and, and different um, places like the US um, on, on the massive um, global um, issues that were impacting our world. And she's come home and decided to leave that career behind and, and step into a different type of world in, in really representing her local community and doing an incredible job at that. So it's just, um, yeah, it's no wonder they're, they're inspiring this, this new interest in, in politics in Australia. They're all really great community leaders and, and are all doing what it takes to engage them and take the community along the journey of, of being engaged in the process of um, being a representative. The tide is changing, finally. Um, tell me a little bit about how you got involved in Climate 200, like what's your story? How does one end up being a part of this sort of initiative? Yeah, well, that's a big question. Uh, you know, it all, I think to, to many um, extent, the where we end is a result of where we've been, right? There's kind of building blocks of different decisions we make and, and career choices that we, we make. For me, it was back at university where I adopted a framework for decision-making about my career around maximising my climate impact. Like I, I became aware of the climate crisis sort of in my 20s at uni and really thought it was a, a massive issue that needed more attention. I remember writing an essay and I kind of came out of writing that essay thinking, God, has anyone heard of this climate thing? Like, this is very serious. And, and why aren't we mobilising like it's a world war? Like, it's quite obvious that the the realities of where we're heading are, are pretty disastrous if we don't get it under control. And, um, you know, spent a bit of time sort of despairing about that and then eventually got, you know, into the action frame and decided that I would then make all of the decisions around my career through a frame of maximising my climate impact for my day, my working day. And that decision took me to a bunch of different places, initially to the Department of Climate Change in Australia at a federal level, um, worked on the UN climate change negotiations, so Kyoto Protocol, Paris Agreement, 
um, process. I was one of the Paris Agreement negotiators for Australia uh, in the lead up to 2015. Also worked on climate change aid projects in the developing world. I'd, I'd done a lot of travel with my um, parents and then as a, um, as a uni student overseas and really was passionate about the opportunities to decarbonise the developing world where they hadn't really made some of the mistakes that we have made here or it was a different time, different opportunities, different economics around the development decisions, particularly around energy that those countries could make. So I was engaged in that field for quite a while. And then I sort of had enough of working for government and decided to step out and um, found my way into a, a job working for an independent senator from South Australia in the couple of parliaments back. His name is Tim Storer. And he was a really interesting guy, really thoughtful, um, really reset the tone of the conduct of parliament when he was there in the Senate. Um, there was a lot of deal making and kind of people taking um, positions on important pieces of national legislation that were passing through, not based off the merits, but based off the deal they would get. You know, would they get a new roundabout or would they get a new football stadium in their, in their home state was dictating why they would decide their position on a certain issue. And he took issue, he, he thought that was crazy and took a position of um, not making deals and treating everything on its merits. And you could really see how that impacted the tone of the debate in the Senate. And during that time, it just became quite clear to me that independents have an ability to communicate um, with the public in a way that party um, members don't necessarily. They Parties carry a lot of baggage. Uh, and so that really inhibits the way they operate. They also have a lot of deals that they've made and compromises they've made and coalitions they've offered entered into that restrict the way that they can respond genuinely to policy questions they're asked. And so I left that job feeling quite inspired about the role that community independence can play and really determined to see if I could make a contribution to making up for some of the um, unlevel playing field that exists when it comes to an independent. So obviously, if you're a member of a party, there's all this infrastructure, branding, history behind you, money behind you through the, the donor networks that they've, they've well established for years. And if you're an independent, you've got to come up against all that and build it all yourself. And it's, it's really, really challenging. And that's why independents have had you know, various degrees of success in Australia and, and until the most recent federal election, really not achieved success at scale since federation. You know, the first parliament actually had a lot of independence in it. So it's well and truly within Australia's political history, but not in recent time. They've been pretty few and far between. And so I went off after he finished his time in the Senate and um, did some study overseas, was lucky enough to spend a year at Oxford um, and then sort of thought about it there, did a lot of writing about it there, connected with some some people before I went. Simon Holmes Court, the founder of Climate 200, is someone I connected with just before I went overseas. I ended up working on the US presidential election um, for a Biden aligned group um, back in 2020. And that gave me some, some experience and some new insights into how you might really support these sorts of campaigns back in Australia. And so I returned to Australia in uh, January 2021 and was really keen to, to jump into seeing how we could level the playing field for community independence. Karen Phelps had been elected independent here in Wentworth in the time that I was working for Tim Storer in Parliament. She'd subsequently lost her seat, but at the same elections, Ali Stegall had been elected in the seat of Ringer, replacing Tony Abbott, who was a, a notorious climate sceptic and former Prime Minister. So that was a really extraordinary result. There had been another independent who'd taken over for, from Kathy McGowan in the rural city of Indi in Victoria, Helen Haynes. That was also a really good sign that you could transition a seat from one independent to another if there was good community momentum. And so those factors were really 
in my mind when I started doing some work for Simon and Climate 200 and helped develop the strategy and eventually built up the team and um, led the team through to the, the federal election in in 2022, which was which was a, a big success, and we were really happy to make a contribution to that community endeavour. When you and Simon first had a conversation about Climate 200, I mean, in my head, this is how it goes. All right, mate, want to go to the pub? Yeah, I've got this idea. It's called Climate 200. And did you ever think, oh, that's a big ask? Or were you like, 100% it's going to work? No, I was I was really excited about the idea. Um, and and it, it just seemed to be a combination of, of the right things. Like I, I thought a lot about the... Um, that I was on board with the benefits of getting more independence. Like that was very clear. I'd worked in climate policy. That's front and center to what Simon was about. He's a you know, climate philanthropist, was looking fundamentally for climate 200 for him, was looking for a way to have better impact for his and his community's philanthropic contributions and his time, his work time, his effort. And, uh, you know, he, he'd found that doing the same old things of donating to your local NGO, environmental NGO, while it does good work, ultimately wasn't shifting the dial in terms of where Australia was. Australia on a federal level, going backwards over the, the decade that the Liberal National Party coalition was in government on all key indicators. So it didn't matter how much money you threw at good analysis or research by think tanks. Really, the problem was that analysis was getting handed to the wrong people. The people in parliament weren't on board. They had a different vision about what Australia should be prioritising. They had different... Uh, people supporting them, the fossil fuel industry, for example, and and weren't keen to, to do to do what it takes to really embrace this incredible economic opportunity that Australia has uh, in the position we are currently in, with with amazing renewable energy resources and incredible um, clean technology industries already in this country. And so he wanted a more direct way to contribute to that, and that made sense to me. I'd just come out of working in politics. I'd seen some really effective campaigning done in the US. And it was a really, yeah, it just made a lot of sense. And so he asked me to come on board, do a bit of consulting, do a bit of strategy work. And um, straight away, we kind of got on and saw eye to eye. He liked the work and it was really, um, it's been a really good working relationship ever since. We talk a lot about personal changes on this podcast, but how do we create social change? And why is it so hard to move the dial? I think there's just a lot of inertia in any society, right? It's just people are busy. People are often busy. You know, it's 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 hard work living your life and keeping your you know your family fed and keeping your job sorted and having a bit of downtime as well around it. And it's just really hard to prioritize. I think often also people it's not clear what they can do to really um, contribute to a shift, which again I think is what Climate 200 really did effectively. It said to the public in the lead up to the election, if you want to see a change on climate policy and on integrity policy and on gender policy in Australia, then there's a really easy thing you can do. You can donate to this community crowdfunding initiative. We'll pull the resources and then based off the analytics that we do and the expertise we have, the on-ground intelligence that we have, we'll just deploy that resource for maximum impact. And, you know, it's, it's in, in many ways very similar to what you do with a, your superannuation fund, right? You don't have the time. I certainly don't have the expertise or the time to effectively manage my superannuation investments. Like I'm not a guy there watching the stock markets and what's trending and trying to pick, you know, the good the good things to invest in. In a similar way, if you're just out there, you, you want to have an impact. You know politics is important. It's a massive blocker to climate action. It can also be an avenue for accelerating climate action. 
that you don't really know who to contribute to to make that a reality, then that's Climate 200 was really the sweet spot that we filled. So we allowed people to invest with confidence to, to donate and then we deployed it with some really strong results, obviously um, working alongside the communities. And we weren't, you know, important to note, we weren't the only donors and supporters to these campaigns. They had many thousands of community donors that came directly to them, but we did get out very early. We were in the field raising money well before any of the candidates were even found. So um, we were there ready with a, with a war chest that we could deploy really quickly. And one thing you find in politics, early money is like yeast, is, is one of the sayings they have. It, it helps you um, in the same way that early money in a, in a private sector sense is really strategic. It leverages in other finance, allows you to get going. Is that really important sort of seed capital? We had that belief. And so we were there very early to be partners with these community groups um, to help them with their fundraising. We we used a, a, a matching approach where we said to them, if you can raise 50 grand, we'll give you another 50 grand. So they helped them turbocharge their own fundraising, but also gave them a really solid chunk of money to get started with. And the leverage impact of that, um, I think is pretty clear and is exciting for those, for those that contributed early to Climate 200. They really got to see the impact of that investment um, up front and, and the results of it um, really flowed on in the election result. Did you ever find yourself in a space of frustration? And I would imagine in the political sphere, there is a lot of, well, corruption and a lot of, I guess, um, a sense that maybe people are there for the wrong reasons. Do you get frustrated at all? Yeah, you know, I actually think it's it's pretty common that people are there for the right reasons. Like, I think in, in politics, there is a lot of negative um, PR around it. And, and I think what, what is true that, that people have different reasons that they're there and they have different theories of what's important and how they should change, um, how, they should, how should they, they should change things. Um, but I think very few people are just sort of straight up corrupt. I think there are a few, there's a few bad eggs in, in the kind of the findings of different state um, integrity commissions, anti-corruption commissions that have shown that there is definitely corruption. But I think the vast majority of people who, who are in politics, who are politicians, really do have the, the best interests um, of their community at heart. But what their community is may differ. You know, if you're Senator Matt Canavan, the, the Liberal National Party Senator from Queensland, it's very clear his community is coal mining communities in, in central Queensland. And so he's very happy to promote um, doing some policy, you know, continuing policy and subsidies arrangements for that to, to, to assist those communities, even though it's not in the long-term interests of, of the country or the, the world, or even actually those, those communities ultimately. But he probably doesn't see it like that. He kind of thinks um, we, he should do the best to support them right now. And I get that. I kind of, you know, to a certain degree, respect that. But really, I think if you're in a federal parliament, you've got to have the, the greater good of the country and the world at heart when you're making your decisions about where you stand on these really important issues. And ultimately, that's what history is going to judge you by. You know, how have you treated the, the um, all the people out there who are going to get impacted by uh, us failing to, to take leadership on this really critical existential threat? Do you ever panic about it, that we're not making enough headway? quickly enough yeah i think it's like a lot of people go through their real crisis moment with, with with climate as soon as it really dawns on you the scale of the challenge i remember mine was permafrost 
So learning about how if you, you heat the, the world up a certain amount, then areas of, of the Arctic Circle in the, the Northern Hemisphere mostly that have been permanently frozen for thousands and thousands of years that are essentially boggy um, methane bubbles, they start to melt. It releases the methane. Methane is a really potent greenhouse gas that accelerates the global warming um, um, cycle, which means more land is then melted, which means more um, methane is released. And so that's where you get these runaway kind of feedback loops. And these are the real crisis kind of scenarios that scientists talk about. When you go over these tipping points, suddenly you've heated the globe up enough that these natural cycles get out of whack. And then you have this runaway nightmare scenario that you can't stop, even if we were to stop all fossil fuel emissions tomorrow. So that, that's the type of thing for me, that was a real kind of freak out. And I spent a couple of years, I think, really um, sort of, yeah, lamenting how, how, how badly the situation was that we were seeing, seeing emerge, but also the fact we weren't taking serious action on it. Uh, and I got angry with my friends at, at university. I remember I could, because I had conversations with them where I would say, you know, you can see you're a smart person. And I was at sort of law school at the time. So hanging out with a lot of people who, who are smart or fancy themselves is quite smart and saying that, you know, you can see the same information that I can. This is freely available. You see it in the news. You're, you're taking it in, you're reading it. I know you are. Why aren't you seeing this as the same existential crisis that I am that requires us all to put our shoulder to the wheel and contribute to it? Why are you going off and doing corporate law to work at a bank? Like, why is that? Why are you seeing that as your main priority? And I had to kind of just make peace with that. You know, I had to kind of accept that there was going to be people were, were going to be motivated by different things. And I think a lot of the time you, you can fall into the trap of focusing on why the people you love or that are close to you are not doing, some of them aren't doing what you wish they would be. And you forget that there's all these people around you that are doing great things. And so at one point I kind of pivoted to focusing my attention on people who are doing all the good stuff. And so I'm building that network and, you know, I've got a WhatsApp group that I've kind of curated over the years of climate leaders in Australia who we get in there and rev each other up and encourage each other to keep going and, and share information and ideas. And um, it's that sort of building, you know, focusing on the people who are doing the good work can really help nourish you and energize you and get you excited for the, the challenge ahead you know, the one thing particularly with climate it's a marathon not a sprint and that was very clear to me at the time i had friends at uni who, who did get it who were freaked out and they were saying things like let's quit uni let's go and lock on bulldozers you know in the hunter valley it's time for us to go get really hardcore on activism and i, I kind of while respecting that at the time sort of felt i don't know i feel like i should just finish my law degree maybe that'll ultimately if i have a lifetime kind of career perspective of this that doing that will ultimately help me have greater impact mm. and the same with taking some time out after i finished working for the senator and to go do a master's that you know time out you're not actually having impact day to day on the issue but it's time to kind of build your own expertise to become uh, a better operator to become a better leader to become more educated more informed and that ultimately will enhance your impact and so i think taking that long-term perspective is really important to imagine the burnout also for me working in it is a really fundamental thing I, I felt like if i could spend every day working nine to five on climate i could have a weekend you know i could get to the saturday and be like okay i've done a hard yak a week of working hours and hours and hours on this can go for a surf or I can go have a dinner with my mates and put it aside, you know, be a bit free of it. 
if I wasn't working on it, I know that I'll be spending every spare hour focusing on trying to do something. And that would be a pretty exhausting existence, I think, given the scale of the problem. Do you think you have created that type of lifestyle? Can you go, can you switch off at the weekend? Do you stop worrying about it? I think it depends who you ask. I'm sure I have some friends or or, or colleagues who would say I I don't switch off as much as I should. But yeah, I I do think so. Like, you know, for me also working on climate environment issues, reconnecting with the environment is really important and give myself time and permission to do that when it's not distracted. I'm a real keen surfer. And so luckily when you're out in the surf, there's no way for you to have your mobile phone or your laptop on you. And so there's definitely that time, you know, an hour, an hour and a half where just you and the ocean getting into flow, thinking about um, the bigger things and seeing some dolphins go past you while, while you're at it. That's really, really important. Um, and I would encourage anyone, you know, make sure you do that, you know, go and re-engage. Remember why, you know, when, you, when you're in such a long fight, remembering why it is you're struggling and why it is you're getting up in the morning and doing this hard work is, is, is critical to, to maintaining that longevity. How do you cope with climate deniers? I mean, I'm assuming you don't go for dinner with many of them. I quite, I really quite like spending time with people who have different views. Yeah. I think that is a really important thing for us to do if we want to get, um, become more effective communicators, but also to understand, like kind of get where they're coming from. And I, and I think having empathy in any discussion you have, even if the person is coming from a really different position is, is critical. And I remember you know, I've got friends in the US who are kind of Republicans, you know, and like thinking about sort of Trump, you're like, how can you, how can you do that? And even in Australia, you know, friends that have different sort of political ideologies t- to me. And, and I think it's important to expose yourself to that and try in a sort of rational, calm way, engage with it, understand it, and also kind of ha- have a find where there is meeting ground, where, where you can have um, a bit of a, a joint view on things. There's a... Um, a great book, uh, Ryan Holiday, US, US author, wrote a book, The Obstacle is the Way. And it's all about how if you want to win debates or, or, or win, a, win a fight, very rarely do you succeed by just being a bulldozer with a full frontal assault. Like that's very, and even if you look back in military history books, it's like very rarely is that the way to win. The way to win is to kind of see what they have to say, to kind of withdraw, step to the side and find a different angle. And I think we can spend so much time trying to bash on the front door that we can forget that the side window's open. And so I think when you meet that resistance, it's like taking a step back, doing a lap around the house, seeing if the side door's open or the side window's open and maybe using that as a way to start the conversation. And a good example with a climate skeptic is that you, you, you may not be able to get them there on the science, but they probably can get them there on the energy security. You know, and for example, the fact that we as a nation that has incredible renewable energy resources, in our country now again we're the lucky country we've consistently been the lucky country with our natural resources and fortuitously again we're we're arguably the best positioned country in the world when it comes to our renewable energy resources getting them um in the discussion of why is it that we're importing our our oil from the middle east when we could be powering all our transport off homegrown renewable energy why why are we suffering at the at the petrol pump when there's a war in ukraine when we have all the resources here to have free, essentially free transport, thanks to the sun and wind. Mm. Equally with electricity prices, you know, the, the cheapest form of new electricity generation around the world is, is renewables. And that's clear. And so if you want cheaper power prices, then you invest heavily in renewables. It also helps your manufacturing industries. It makes you more resilient. 
makes you less dependent on international quantity prices. Again, electricity prices going up because of the war in Ukraine. We don't have to be doing that. You know, we can be having essentially free electricity here in Australia if we just make the right investment decisions. And so it's those sorts of discussions, which I think in climate you can have and find common ground with people, even if they on the science don't don't want to come to the party. Mm. That's some sage advice there. I, I do consider myself to be a bit of a bulldozer. I'm going to be completely honest. Um, so just changing tact a little bit here. How do you best cope with change in your own life? I mean, it sounds like you have been all around the world um lived in many places done lots of different things um how do you cope with change or do you cope with change well yeah i think it's important to always see the opportunity of any new environment you're in and and this kind of links i guess to also failure you know you can there's a lot of failure in life and in 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 your work and i think it's in you know it, it behoves in us well to embrace it and see the silver linings and learn from it and Anytime you go to a new environment, there's like a lot, there's always a lot of fun to be had. Um, and I, you know, I spent a year after after high school doing a gap year in like the far north of England, up up in, in Lancashire. And it was like pretty isolated, sort of small country town. And there was only sort of three or four other people my age who were there, but we had a great time. You know, you can kind of sort of create fun wherever you are. And I think it's just important to kind of build, you know, invest time in building your community and, and finding the things that bring you joy and getting back into your routine and, you know, exercise there. I couldn't do much surfing. So I became a, a pretty keen runner and that running, you know, when I was, when I was in the, um, doing a master's in the UK, running became a real avenue for me discovering new beautiful environments and around Oxford, there's lots of beautiful rivers. And I discovered even lockdowns I was there during, during COVID, we found some incredible, beautiful spots that frankly wouldn't have discovered had it not have been for COVID. And so, you know, if you just kind of stay open to the world and look for the opportunities, then they'll present themselves and you'll be able to enjoy yourself in, in, in a lot of different contexts. You know, there's, there's take it to the extreme as examples of people who, who write novels when they're in, in prison and, and, and feel like those, although quite traumatic experiences, actually are quite defining. And I think that sort of mindset um, is really is really a good one to keep in mind if you find yourself in those difficult situations when you're in a new environment. Have you always been resilient and optimistic oh, i think we all have ups and downs right um, and i did work you know i spent five or six years working for uh, liberal national coalition governments in australia on climate policy so they've definitely had some grim times but even then we're, we're, we were we were quite pleased with what we were able to achieve actually in that context we still were able to do some good stuff um i do remember you know a teacher at um at high school asking me when i, I kind of went in he was my house master and went in for a you know a chat it was the first one we'd had and he's like are you like the happiest guy at the school um but i didn't really know how to handle that yeah i just i don't know i've had good you know i had a fun childhood growing up at the beach helps and uh you know i've just got a got a pretty sunny outlook on life which um i hope to keep yeah that's awesome here at behind the change we love a bit of failure um we consider that with any change failure comes along with it and as we are looking to create uh, certainly a new climate future here for ourselves in Australia obviously there is going to be some failure as we figure that out and we find out what works and what doesn't work what has been your biggest failure to date and what did it teach you it's a great question oh it's kind of stumped me there's a, there's a few so 
maybe I don't know if it's my biggest, but I'll, I'll talk through a few a few examples. Um, during the most recent uh, election in, in Victoria, we supported a few candidates. So Climate 200, out of the federal election, um, decided to support a few candidates in Victoria. Um, again, the same sort of dynamic emerging, real community interest in supporting a new type of political candidate, um, good candidates emerging, selected by the community and grassroots efforts happening. And so it was you know, a question for us is, would we go in there at a different level and do what we did again. Now, it's a super different environment there. Um, there are really strict donation caps, so we can only donate a certain amount of, of money. So we couldn't use our same model of, of aggregating as much funding centrally. We had to encourage donors to directly give money to the candidates we supported, but also it, it faced the challenge of being very close to the federal election. So donors were tired, volunteers were tired. It was a Labor government in power as opposed to a Liberal government. That also impacts enthusiasm. Nevertheless, we went in there and supported a few few campaigns. Ultimately, none of those campaigns were successful, so it was a you know failure in that sense. But a lot of them came very close, and we learnt a hell of a lot. And I think this is for me is the most important thing with failure is that you've you've got to learn from it. And really, when you fail, you learn way more because you're much more critical about what you did. When you succeed, there's a real risk that the next time you try and do the thing, you will fail because you haven't really internalized all the lessons. There's a lot of luck in this sort of stuff and there's other external factors that you don't really have control of. And, uh, and you know, you might well therefore fail next time around. And so in Victoria, we, we learned a hell of a lot of good lessons there and we're now internalizing those to our work on the New South Wales election, which is coming up in March. Again, there's some of the similar challenges, but we think we have more experience and think we can support the campaigns here to ultimately be successful. But also the lessons we learned from Victoria have federal implication. The campaign that came the closest was in the uh, southwest of the state in Mornington, which is on the Mornington Peninsula. Uh, and the candidate there came within a couple hundred votes, so incredibly close. This is a seat that's been held by the Liberal Party since World War II, basically hasn't known anything else but Liberal. In the federal election, they had an independent campaign there, but it didn't really get off the ground. There were two different independent candidates and it was a challenging dynamic and wasn't really as, as successful as we would hope. So now, based off that experience at the state level, we think that's a real opportunity at the next federal and will be a real focus for us. So out of that failure, still some great opportunities, some great learnings. And also, you know, new, it's a very new movement, very nascent here in Australia and opportunities to build those um, the skills and expertise of the people working on these campaigns and who are engaged, that's really invaluable. And coming out of Victoria, there's, there's a three or four brilliant campaign managers who really cut their teeth doing some strong work there that hopefully will be engaged in the movement going forward and really strengthen the, the overall output of what we're about. And, and so um, hopefully help contribute to a positive, su successful result in the future in those, in those geographies. It comes back to running the marathon, doesn't it? I suppose. Like, yeah, yeah. You've got to, you've got to take each election as a building block to something that is greater in the future. Yeah, and personally, it applies as well. Like, I, you know, I failed a few subjects at university. I think I failed constitutional law. Um, you know, I went back in and, and studied it and learnt more, did better next time. Kind of, you know, internalised that a bit more. And so I think it's, you know, you as long as you keep the right mind frame around the failures and you get up yeah and this is what elite athletes always talk about as well it's not not how you take the successes it's how you take the failures and your ability to be resilient and bounce back and keep working on it and maintain the 
the fire and the and the desire to to make it work. Climate 200, to a certain extent, you know, it started in 2019, so it had had a test run, and it was some successes, but really some some failures in what it had done there. And it's, it's a good example. You you often need proof of concept and be clear on you know if you're going into a new environment often you can fail but if you can learn a lot and test new new theories that then can be applicable to a scaled up model and you can pull that off then maybe you'll be in in for some some massive success yeah that's a great way to um to relate to failure i think as well like it's the first thing we ask ourselves right what what went wrong like what went wrong here and that like you say is where the evidence lies it's where the learning lies and it's where that that's where we need to put our work and our focus that area is where we need to put our work and our focus and make the change Byron thank you so much for talking with me today it's been a very insightful conversation certainly for me and I'm sure for our listeners who else should I speak to on this podcast there's so many good change makers out there I think the guys that are doing uh the the asparagopsis farming down in Tasmania I'm not sure if you've You've heard of them. There's this uh, company, I may get the name wrong, Sea, sea Garden, Ocean Garden, um, who are growing at scale a seaweed, an Australian seaweed, which if you feed it to cattle, basically eliminates their methane emissions. Methane, again, massive uh, greenhouse gas. Main challenge with the agricultural industry is its methane emissions. This technology, this um, feed substitute or feed um, additive, is a, is a pathway potentially to decarbonizing the, the world's um, agricultural industry, the livestock industry. And so if that can be scaled, you know, we're on. That is just like, you know, you can guilt-free um, in terms of a greenhouse gas perspective, eat lamb, beef and and um, and, and other other livestock. So talking to them about that, I think it'd be, I've always wanted to have a deep chat about um, to them about what what's going on and, uh, and the scale they're seeing in the interest of their products, that'll be a great one. There's a bunch of other really good change makers working in the uh, sort of nonprofit space. Beyond Zero Emissions, I'll put in a plug for really good thinking around um, what what they should be doing with uh, what, what the, the country should be doing to accelerate decarbonisation. Uh, and there's a few others happy to, happy to recommend. Great. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been such a delightful conversation. Appreciate you very much. We will be linking um, all of the Climate 200 links in the show notes. So please go ahead and check it out. And if you fancy it, even give a donation. Thank you so much for your time today, Byron. Thanks so much, Emily.